Expectations are everything, a friend of mine is always saying, and it's true, and it's surprising how often people, in spite of really clear signals of what they should expect, somehow don't expect what they actually receive. I'm an occasional college instructor, and in almost every class, no matter how small the class, there is a college student that signed up for something to do with Bible theology or preaching that complains about the amount of reading and writing that they have to do in college. What did you think we were going to do? This isn't sculpture. We're here to read the Bible and study it and understand it together. So yes, you're going to read, but that's not entirely surprising. I've also heard water polo players complain about, can you guess? Swimming. A great deal of complaining about swimming on the water polo team. And a good friend of mine who was in the first service, he'll tell you his story. He's not bashful about it. He decided to join the Marine Corps, but was telling me about his experience. He sent, he told me, a letter home from boat camp that said simply, Mama, they're trying to kill your boy. Come get me. (laughs) And the reason he actually literally feared for his life, and it took an angry man to get him through boot camp, was he said, Pastor, I'm scared to death of water. And I said, buddy, it's in the name. They're the Marines, not the lands. What did you think was going to happen? How did you not realize that water would be involved? And he said a line that I've now taken as a motto, good initiative, poor judgment. That's what happens when our expectations are not met. This passage in 1 Peter is all about expectations. From literally the sixth verse of the letter in this five-chapter letter that Peter wrote, understand, for those of you who are getting to know the Bible, the chapters and the verses are not original. Those only appeared about 500 years ago to help us more easily read and understand and point to things in the Bible. This was a personal letter written to, by Peter to a group of scattered, suffering, persecuted Christians. And in the very first part of the letter, right after he greets them, he explains to them that he knows they have been grieved by different kinds of trials, but that the purpose of that is to test their faith and to purify it. And for the rest of the letter, for the entirety of the letter, he wants to teach them how to suffer. Because the truth is, we don't get to choose whether we suffer. The only thing we can choose is how we suffer. Nobody gets to choose whether they suffer or not, or when they will, or what it might be. But in the grace and the power of Jesus, you can always choose not what you go through, but definitely how you go through it. And it is that that Peter wants to teach us in 1 Peter chapter 4, teaching us how to suffer like Christians. We've reached verse 12. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you. Notice he's speaking to people he loves. Many Bible translations say they're dear friends, but Peter's Greek language communicates to them that they are loved. He's not standing aloof. He's not standing at a distance from their pain. He's not a theorist. Sometimes people who teach in colleges are rightly called ivory tower people, just up there in a tower removed from real life. And they make this joke as well, those who do, uh, those who can do and those who can't teach, okay? Those of us who teach have to put up with that. 
Peter is definitely teaching, but he's also a practitioner. He's well tested. He's well proven. He's proven not only by obedience, but also by failure in everything that he's going to tell them about suffering. Peter, you may remember, once denied his Lord. When he was persecuted and pushed, Peter once denied before Jesus was crucified that Peter had even met him. So everything he's telling them begins with that word, beloved. You are my dear and loved friends. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. Suffering for a disciple of Jesus can be very, very painful, but it should never be surprising. Do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. Okay, easily enough. At least when I'm not suffering, I can understand and put it down in my mind and make prior commitments that when I suffer, I won't be surprised by it. That part is easy enough to understand and maybe even to put into practice, to adjust my expectations that way. But the next verse, that takes the perspective of eternity. That takes the power of Jesus. Do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you, but what's it say? Rejoice. Rejoice. When it gets really, really tough, you should get really, really happy is what Peter seems to be saying. Does that make sense to you? <laughs> Tougher it gets, the greater your joy. You won't be surprised, you will be rejoicing. Why? How? But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad, look, when His glory is revealed. In other words, the joy is looking forward. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are what? You are blessed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the Spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. Let's unpack this. The first thing that Peter teaches us about suffering is perhaps the most surprising and the most difficult to put into practice. His direct instruction is this, when you suffer, don't be surprised, rejoice instead. When you suffer as a Christian, when you suffer for the name of Jesus, when your obedience to Jesus brings you into suffering for Him, sharing His suffering, suffering as He did, don't be grieved, don't be surprised. On the other hand, be happy. The apostles, Peter had lived through this. In Acts chapter 5, the apostles are being arrested and persecuted for the second time. First it was Peter and John, then in chapter 5 we're told that the apostles as a group are arrested and threatened and commanded by the same religious authorities that had killed Jesus, stop talking about him. Don't preach about Jesus anymore. Leave his name out of it. I want you to see their reaction. Peter here's giving you instruction. Here's where he learned it in the first place. Here's when he first put it into practice long before he started preaching it. Read this with me. Acts chapter 5, verse 40. It says, When they had called in the apostles, they beat them and charged them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. Then they left the presence of the council rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name, and every day in the temple and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching that the Christ 
is Jesus. They took a beating, a first century beating, with no observers from the United Nations watching, no human rights group to advocate for them. They took a first century bloody, perhaps crippling beating. They limped home dripping blood from a judicial religious beating, and it says they were rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name of Jesus. Now, this makes amazing reading and even and good preaching, but can you sit with that for a second? What if that were you? What if they said, listen, it's, you're very public about your faith in Christ, and you have a right to it, but we want you to shut up about it. You clear? It's upsetting people. It's bad for our cause, bad for our company. Shut up. What then? See, in every century up into our present day, because more Christians died for Christ in the 20th century than in any previous century, your brothers and sisters all around the world are having to answer that very question. The Contreras have the great joy of preaching Christ in the city of His birth. We have a good number of missionaries in that part of the world. One of my dearest friends in a neighboring country beside Israel, the first believer he met over there in his country of service of a Muslim majority, was shot by his own family the day he became a Christian. When he made his faith public through baptism, when we baptize people, and you're going to see some baptisms next week now that our, our, our youth are back from Hume and God did some amazing things, and we look forward to telling you all about it next week. When we have baptisms, we photograph it. We put the video out. Everybody cheers. I even got a nasty note one time many years ago. People thought we were too happy and cheered too loud for people getting baptized. I disagreed politely with, uh, I thought it was totally worth celebrating. I thought we were right on, maybe could be a little bit louder. In much of the world, your public baptism marks you for trouble. And the Christian response has always been, faithfully, if they will persecute us for the name of Jesus, bring it on. We will count ourselves blessed, we will count ourselves honored that He died for us to, in obedience to Him, we, were willing, we are willing to suffer for Him. Where did they get this idea? Is this masochism? No, it's at the heart of the teaching of Jesus Himself. Look in Matthew chapter 5 at the end of the Beatitudes. Jesus is teaching the Beatitudes, which are basically a job description for disciples of Jesus. This is how believers think and act in the world until they arrive safely home with Him. At the very end of the Beatitudes, as a conclusion, as an exclamation point, Jesus said this. Read it with me. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Jesus says, if you're suffering for His name, you should be excited. You should count that in honor. You should take that as a cause for joy, as a cause for gladness, because you're in good company. They did the same thing to the prophets who came before Jesus, who spoke of Him. They will do so at least occasionally to people who 
follow Jesus. Look carefully at what Jesus said. It's important and it's undertaught. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you. Watch this. Falsely, on my account, rejoice and be glad for your... What do you say next? Your reward is great in heaven. It's exactly what Peter's talking about. Peter is basically echoing the Beatitudes of Jesus in verse 13. Rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings that you may also rejoice and be glad when His glory is revealed. In other words, it may hurt here and now, but it will be, re it will be rewarded later and it will be rewarded there and then. Here's the undertop part of Christian teaching. I've taught it here before, but I've neglected to do so very much. And I really, really need you to tune in because we live in a cell phone age and Instagram's very attractive and Facebook and snap face, chat, <laughs> chat book, whatever you're doing now. Not even sure what the latest platforms all are. Snapface would be a great name for a social media platform, wouldn't it? The way most people behave. Okay, tune in right here, right now, if you've been distracted by me or by anything else, including your phone, because if you don't entirely understand this, you'll think I'm teaching something dangerous and heretical that will endanger your soul, and I'm not. Salvation is entirely by grace. You cannot earn your way to heaven. You can't contribute to your own salvation. It is all of grace, all paid by God. In fact, our very attempts through our own righteousness to contribute to our salvation, where we meet God halfway, as some people have said, and He does the rest, the very idea is not only a complete failure, it's actually offensive. What could you possibly do to repay God for the, His own life, the life of His Son, Jesus Christ? How could you make that up to Him? What could you do besides love and trust Him when He commands you to do to contribute to the saving work of Jesus Christ in living, dying, and rising again from the dead to give you His own life? Salvation is entirely by grace with no contribution from you. Clear enough? That's the gospel. That's the good news. Here's the part that is often undertaught or misunderstood. Salvation is entirely by grace, but based on what Jesus is telling us here, what Peter and much of the New Testament teaches, salvation is by grace, but your rewards, those are earned. What you do with the life that Jesus gives you entirely by His grace in other words, from the moment you have the life of Christ and you begin living your short little span here on earth with the life, the grace, and the gifts that He gives you, from that point forward, your obedience not only matters, your obedience will be rewarded. You can both earn, according to the Bible, and you can lose rewards based on what you do in response to Christ after He saves you. You'll be saved all the same. We'll all be saved alike, but not everyone will be rewarded in the same way because not every Christian will choose to embrace suffering and obedience to Christ as a means of glorifying Him and in His grace being rewarded by Jesus. It's all of grace. 
even your obedience, the very energy and motivation you have to obey Him, it's all going to come from Him, but God is so gracious that if you choose to obey Him after He saves you, He's going to reward you. And great obedience will be greatly rewarded, and faltering and partial obedience will only be partially rewarded. This is why Jesus speaks elsewhere of those who appear to be first actually coming in last. This is why many of your brothers and sisters that I could introduce you to if we had the time when we turn the cameras off who serve in and live for Jesus in very difficult places will make people like me appear as paupers in the kingdom of heaven. Because, just speaking of myself now, you have any idea how much I've been given? I was born in a loving family. I was born an American citizen. I was provided nearly for free through the generosity of others, of others and scholarships from school. I was provided a magnificent education. I've enjoyed, with very rare exceptions in our missionary life, almost unparalleled freedom to preach Christ, serve Christ, speak of Christ, do things for Christ anywhere, everywhere, with no danger at all. You have brothers and sisters all over the world who were born into poverty, who are scarcely literate or not literate at all, who sacrifice daily for their daily subsistence and work hard just to survive. But in difficult environments where it's politically, culturally, and sometimes even legally dangerous to do so, they keep talking about Jesus. They embrace the reproach of the first apostles, and those things will be rewarded. Suffering for Christ will bring a reward at His return. Verse 13, rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when His glory is revealed. Verse 14, if you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. What's that mean? That means that suffering for Christ not only will be rewarded when Jesus returns, it also proves that we're really Christians. The hallmark in all of Christian history that you're really a Christian is you're willing to suffer for being a Christian. If things actually turn in the United States and it becomes less and less popular and more and more costly to publicly identify as a Christian, I will make a mild prediction that we're going to find out some things, and that the church will be thinned, and people's real heart motivations will be exposed, of whether it was a matter of familial tradition or cultural convenience or genuine, heartfelt, individual commitment to suffer for Christ wherever He calls us to do so. Peter has a warning, though. Look in verse 15, 1 Peter 4, verse 15, but let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or as a meddler. In other words, number two, second lesson regarding how to suffer as a Christian, be sure you're suffering for Jesus, not for your own bad behavior. There's a temptation there. If you're publicly a Christian, when things go bad for you, there's a certain kind of Christian that blames every trouble in his life on his faith. I'll put it plainly. Make sure you're suffering for Jesus, not because you've acted like a jerk. There is very, very tempting for public Christians to call every kind of trouble and inconvenience in their lives 
a part of their service for Christ. And often, really, it's, they've just behaved badly. I mean, there's some major stuff on this list that probably few of us have much acquaintance with. Let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer, and then it gets really personal. Or as a, what's it say? Meddler. That is the 21st century American temptation, in my opinion. Another translation says, or as one who pries in another's affairs, you know where that happens? It's a little wonderful device called social media, where Christians start fires, set rooms ablaze, destroy relationships, and then leave the conversation. Through social media, you can be plugged into other people's affairs 24 hours a day and spend your precious life meddling rather than sharing the life, the faith, and the character of Jesus. Be sure, Peter says, that you're suffering for Jesus and not your own bad behavior. Then, in the most intense part of the passage, Peter says in verse 16, yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed. But let him glorify God in that name, for it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? Peter is reminding his readers of the absolute holiness of God. That God is, in, is sovereign over all the world. He runs His family of believers, and He's also in charge, and He will call to account everyone who rejects Him. And he says, judgment begins at the house of God. In other words, we who know God are the first to answer to Him. Part of the way we will answer to Him and we will be revealed whether we're really and truly His and mature in our faith is through our suffering. For those who reject God, who deny God, what Peter is saying is, if those of you who are saved are going to be saved through a great deal of suffering, imagine what will happen to those who reject God altogether. What's the invitation here? Number three, it runs through the whole letter. Embrace suffering as a God-given way to purify your faith. When you suffer, when I suffer, when there's pain in life from any of the many sources through which it may come, at that moment you are presented with the choice to make. Because no one is ever left the same after they really suffer. You will either turn away from God and grow bitter, you will grow downhearted, you will grow despairing of Him, you will doubt His promises, or you will ultimately turn back to Him. And sometimes, as the psalmist tells us in so many different places, in so many different psalms, you'll swing between one and the other. Your initial reaction will be poor, and you will call out to God and cry out to God, maybe even with doubt, maybe even with fear, maybe even with accusation and with grumbling and complaining. But the true believer needs to see past that initial jolt and understand that in the furnace of suffering, there is a tremendous opportunity and an invitation from God to turn to Him and have your faith, your trust in Him made better. 
Look what he said in verse 6 in chapter 1, the very beginning of the letter. This sets the tone for the whole letter. Now in the passage we're reading, Peter is explaining step by step what to remember and what to do when you suffer for Christ. You have been grieved by various trials so that, in other words, those trials aren't random, they're not chaotic. You have trials of different kinds, you're being hit from all sides, but it's not random and chaotic. There is a purpose in a sovereign God's mind for it. You have been grieved by various trials so that the tested genuineness of your faith, which is more precious than gold that perishes though it is tested by fire, so that your faith may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. There's the reward again. Your faith taken through suffering can, if you have the right response and the right reaction, can grow stronger. Like gold put in a fire, it can grow more pure. The challenge always is to turn to God instead of turning away from Him. Here's a personal testimony from a living Christian. Joni Erickson Tata is known all around the world. When she was a young girl, already a believer, but very young, she dove headfirst into shallow water, suffered a catastrophic injury that nearly killed her and did leave her paralyzed from the neck down. From that painful experience, she's had one of the most remarkable writing, teaching ministries in the English-speaking world, and here's how she explained her struggle to trust God and what she learned from it and how her own faith was made better because of a lifetime of painful suffering. Joni wrote this, He has chosen not to heal me, but to hold me. The more intense the pain, the closer his embrace. The greatest good suffering can do for me is to increase my capacity for God. Real satisfaction comes not in understanding God's motives, but in understanding His character, in trusting in His promises, and in leaning on Him, and in resting in Him as the sovereign who knows what He is doing and does all things well. And centuries before she wrote that, a Puritan named Richard Sibbs wrote, the depths of our misery can never fall below the depths of God's mercy. That's what it means to go through the fire trusting God. And in verse 19, Peter says, therefore, in other words, now that I've taught you that you need not be surprised, instead you should rejoice looking forward to a better reward. Now that I've taught you to make sure that when you suffer, you're doing it for Jesus and not for yourself. Now that I've reminded you that your suffering can actually make you a better, more trusting disciple of Jesus, here's the real proof and the final lesson. Verse 19, therefore let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. This is vitally important. People who are suffering, Peter says, in the present tense, let those who suffer according to God's will. In other words, you're not suffering because it's your fault. You're suffering for being a Christian. You're not getting your 
righteous. You're not getting what your actions deserve. You've trusted God. You've loved God. You've done what the Bible says, and you are suffering according to the will of God. What are you to do in those circumstances? Let those people, Peter says, entrust their souls to a faithful creator. Don't miss the last phrase. It's vitally important. Let them entrust their soul to a faithful creator while doing what? In other words, you don't stop. Number four, the way to suffer as a Christian is finally to trust God and to keep doing good. That's the ultimate test. Many people, when they begin to suffer for Jesus, stop doing the thing that caused the suffering. And that makes sense. But it blunts, it obscures their testimony, and it cancels their reward. The example of the apostles, including Peter himself, once their faith was settled, whatever it cost them to follow Christ, they kept going. And I didn't read it to you, but in Acts chapter 5, when we were reading earlier, the apostles boldly told the threatening authorities, you'll have to decide whether we should obey God or we should obey you. We're going to keep obeying God. You can have the confidence of the psalmist in Psalm 119, verse 75, that if God has led you to it, He will take you faithfully through it. I know, O Lord, that your rules are righteous and that in faithfulness you have afflicted me. In other words, God, I know you speak the truth. I know that whatever hurts me is guided by your unchanging faithfulness. Read verse 76 with me, please. It says, let your steadfast love comfort me according to your promise to your servant. So if you're in a valley today, if your faith is beginning to cost you or it's cost you for a long time, don't forget to keep doing good. Don't forget to keep doing the very things that have brought you trouble. Imitate your Savior Jesus Christ who kept faithfully obeying His Father and speaking the truth to people, and the higher the cost, it never deterred Him from moving forward in obedience to God. Now Christ beckons His disciples to take up our cross, to follow after Him, to enjoy the reward that He will certainly give us. There's not one person on earth, not one of these Christian martyrs I've mentioned, not one person who has ever served Jesus faithfully on this earth who arriving in glory has been disappointed by his choices. No one will ever see the Savior and say it wasn't worth it. He is life and because he's so good, he promises that in his steadfast love he'll comfort you. He has promised you that even if He is afflicting you, that His hand, which you cannot see and may not be able to understand, will only be guided by His faithfulness. So whatever it costs you, you trust Christ and you keep doing what is good and right. That's what it means to suffer as a Christian. Let's pray together.